Hello and welcome to the Mind Your Leadership podcast. Today I will talk with Dr. Peter Ershok. Dr. Peter Ershok is the director of Asian Studies Development Program and Education Specialist at the East-West Center in Honolulu, Hawaii. In his work at the center, he designs and directs faculty and institutional development programs, international and education leadership programs, and research seminars. Most recently, he has helped launch the center's initiative on human artificial intelligence. He has authored and edited more than a dozen books and has a new book soon to be published. I met Dr. Peter Hershok at the International Conference at Hong Kong, about with the East values and economics. We both lectured there and I was honored to be invited as a partner to the Symposium on Human Artificial Intelligence at the East-West Center in Hawaii. Peter's talks are thought-provoking and inspirational, so I'm honored to talk with him and hear his viewpoint. Stay with us. Peter, nice that you're here with us, and I will be happy to hear about your reflection and what do you feel is the most important for you as a leader right now and leaders nowadays? Yeah, well, thanks, Karen, for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to, uh, to be able to have a chat with you this morning. The idea about what leaders need to be doing today is kind of an interesting one because we see so many different kinds of leadership being modeled. Uh, politically and the kind of in the tech sector in education socially with the you know in the United States we have lots of social uh, justice movements that have really just picked up speed over this summer with the black lives matter and so on so we're seeing lots of different kinds of leadership approaching but I guess for myself what I think is really most important is that leaders today need to be aware of the fact that we don't any longer live in a world of problems where basically we can identify ahead of time, What's going to count as a solution? I mean, we now live in a world where it's improvisational genius that's going to get us through. Mm -hmm. It's not the matter that we can say, okay, we get a plan. Here's the parameters for success. We work our way toward it. And you can kind of proceed, you know, in that sense, a quite logical way. Uh, We live in a world of predicaments, of values, conflicts. And so leadership today needs to be sensitive to what's involved in resolving complex global predicaments. That is getting to resolve the values, conflicts that are behind all these issues that we're facing. And that that requires them to be the kind of people who listen well and who are capable of improvising on the spot being creative. So what you're saying is actually connected to presence, right? The ability to be present and to really listen to what's needed right now instead of going out there plan that we decided to follow because it's really uncertain times and we really can plan ahead. Well, Yeah, I mean, I, I often ask people the question, who do we need to be present as in order to address these issues? And it throws it back on us as as persons and says, look, we've been trying to resolve the predicament of climate change for how long? 50 years now that we've known about it? Globally, have we made some progress? A little bit, a very little bit but we really have proven ourselves to be incapable of going into the negotiations, of going into the meetings that are being held as the kind of people who are able to engage in this process of shared predicament resolution. We need to be present differently somehow. I mean, we've proven it to ourselves. So then the question is, well, who do we need to be present as? How do we need to be present? And so, yeah, it's partly about being mindful. It's partly about being attentive. 
But I think it's also having a sensitivity to the fact that there's different kinds of creativity. And too often people go into a negotiation and think they've got their bottom line. They know what their their minimum giveaways are. Mm -hmm. They know what they're not going to give up. And so you kind of come in with a preformed idea of what the outcome is going to be. And if you can get more than the minimum, then great. And I think that we need to start entering these situations, not so much like a negotiation, but more like a flirtation. You know, if you're flirting with somebody, you don't necessarily want to get married. You don't want a contract. You just want to engage one another in a way that you figure out, do we have a lot in common? Where are our points where we overlap? How do we resonate? And that's how I think we need to be entering into these situations. Instead of having a list, a checklist of things, my conditions that need to be met, it's kind of open-ended, unconditional, exploratory. We don't do much exploration in the negotiating tables. That's right. And I liked the metaphor that you gave because I think we really attach to our assumption, to our goals, and we come very focused and direct to what we want to achieve. And we see only a few even one solution. And I think it's really a crucial practice nowadays to, to be able to let go of where we want to head. We can hold in our mind the vision that we want to achieve, but to enable open space to new solution to emerge, right? So we need to change our state of mind. This is really being mindful and curious to what can be achieved through the conversation, but it's a, a practice, right? When it's not something common nowadays, no? It's something we really need to embrace. But I think well, we... and I think about it sometimes, kind of bring it into focus between the difference between playing a finite game and an infinite game. Mm-hmm. There's a guy, James Carr, who wrote a book called uh, Infinite Games back in the 1980s. It's basically just a bunch of short aphorisms. Uh, but it's a, a philosophical reflection on the kinds of activities that we engage in. And when he's saying games, he's meaning everything from actual games like playing football to a marriage to uh, running a business. I mean, we could do all of these things as, in, in his terms, games. And finite games are goal-oriented. You know what it takes to win. You do what it takes to win. And it's winners and losers. And maybe you can sort out the half win, you get a little bit. But basically, it's win-loss. And you play in order to get and to exercise power. And that's one style of leadership. You lead to get to the goals. You set goals, you work hard, try to achieve them. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of people, who are involved in that process of bringing, say, a business venture or uh, an educational venture into focus and to success, a lot of people look at the goal and they go, it doesn't have anything to do with me and my job. You know, I mean, I don't relate to it. And so the infinite game approach is to give up on the idea of goals as the end result that you're striving for. Instead, of talk about directions, directions for relational transformation. You're moving in a direction. You're heading north. It doesn't mean Beijing. It doesn't mean the North Pole. It just means North. You know, mm-hmm. you're heading out from the planet Earth. You could go infinite distance on that on that line. And what that does is it opens up the horizons for people. So people could say, yeah, I could head in that direction. There's something I can contribute. So when you're playing things as an infinite game, you don't play to win. You play to improve the quality of play so that everybody who's involved is able to contribute more to allowing those relational dynamics to take off. And I think that's a totally transformative way to flip the thing and say, no, I'm not looking for the goal. I don't want the immediate payoff. What I want is a vision. So it's really interesting. I really agree with you. When I, I had leaders that I accompanied them, co-founders, and I told them in the meeting, you know, we know where we want to go. I don't know how we'll get there. So actually to open a space and be able to be in the answers and right, not to know the answer, not to know what will be there. So I think it also requires from us to be vulnerable 
And I think it's really, a lot of us talking about it and, you know, it's a common term nowadays, but I think it's really challenging to be vulnerable and be in this position, mainly for leaders and executives in companies that they are goal-oriented and they thought that they need to have the answers. They need to know where they're heading and how they're doing it. Yeah, and I, I think that the word vulnerable, maybe for a lot of people, <clears throat> brings up the idea that they could be harmed. Mm-hmm. Being vulnerable means you're open to being harmed. But like when I talk a lot about improvisation, and I tend to think about that from a musician standpoint, I see you have a guitar hanging on the wall behind you. Yeah. And uh, that's mine. In musical improvisation, if you're doing free improv, you're vulnerable in the sense that you don't know where things are going. You have no idea what the next chord's going to be. You have no idea how the melody is going to develop. The rhythm could change entirely. You and the other people that you're playing with are just immersed in that moment. And yet the whole thing is at risk of falling apart. At any moment, it could just turn to noise and there's not the harmony, you're not moving together and things fall down. But if you're good at improvising, you have that sense of vulnerability, but it's a vulnerability that's intimately connected with this idea of creativity. And for most people who are not musicians, you know, maybe it doesn't really resonate that well. But if you're in a, a love relationship, you know, there's also a vulnerability in a love relationship. Could you get hurt? Well, yeah, you could. I mean, eventually. But what's really exciting about that vulnerability is the total openness that's involved in it, where anything could happen. It could be incredibly good. You know, it could be just okay, but it could be incredibly good. And whether it's incredibly good or not is dependent on only one thing. How much do you put into it? How much are you willing to give in that moment? How sensitive are you? What do you bring to it? What are you willing to offer? Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's vulnerability, but it's a beautiful vulnerability. Yes, when you talk, it resonates with me that you need to be courageous to be vulnerable. And you can can be hurt. Yeah, yeah. Anybody can get hurt. But (laughs) That's okay. So it requires us to open our heart. I think this is part of the process, no? That we need to do as leaders, individuals. And there's a, there's a, one of these sayings that goes around in Buddhist circles, you know, especially as the Zen circles, Chan circles. Uh, you get knocked down eight times, get up nine. You know, you're going to get knocked down. There's no, there's no question. You're going to get hurt in life. And yet, I mean, I, I was an athlete growing up. I broke my arms four times. You know, I, you know, gotten uh, compressed discs in the back and, you know, tons of stitches and bruises and you name it but they make you stronger. So especially if you take your bruises early, you know, you break a bone, the bone is stronger after it heals than it was before it broke. So if we just take these, the disappointments, yeah. If we take the fact that, yeah, okay, I got hurt in that relationship. I got burned in that business deal, but you come out stronger. You know, you don't come out weaker, you come out stronger, but that's gotta be a commitment to coming out stronger from it. And that means not blaming the other. It means taking responsibility for having been there but because you're responsible for having been there, you're also responsible for how you take it, what it means to you. Yes, but when you speak what resonates within me, it's that usually when I get burned, I will close this part of me and I say, okay, next time I will adopt an automatic behavior in order not to fall in this place again. So I'm not sure that people embrace this opportunity to say, okay, what's happened to you? And okay, now I will stay with my heart open and we continue the journey, but usually we close it and then we're getting disconnected from a lot of part within us. Oh, I mean, sure, that's natural. Uh, but just because something's natural doesn't mean it's good. 
It's you right. Know, I mean, a hundred years ago, it was natural for women to stay in the home and take care of the babies and cook the food and take care of the men. That was natural. It's not natural anymore. Thank God. Right. Yeah. You, so, you want mean, to say to me? Okay. We progress, right? Yeah. As uh, humanity, we've progressed. As cultures and societies, we progress. Sometimes we regress. We go backward. Um, but overall, the arc has been moving forward. And I think as persons, we do the same thing. You know, yeah, the natural thing is to close up. Yeah. But we can resist that, that, that urge and work against our habits. Yeah, so I think this is part of being aware and conscious. To see this part and not let the managers, but manage them. Be connected to the experience without letting it manage us. So when you... When you facilitate, when you get uh, seminars for the educational programs and, and, and you design it, what tips and tools do you give the participants? Can you elaborate on that? Well, you know, the, when it's more the education leadership stuff, but what you really want people to do, but, and we work primarily with sort of mid-career type of people, not, you know, newly minted PhDs, but not your seniors in the field. Try to get those people on the, the mid-career stage. And say, if you want to be a transformative uh, agent, within whatever the context you're in, whether it's a university or it's a government ministry or what have you, then how do you approach doing that? What do you need to take into consideration? And there it's more about trying to train people to see things differently, to be present differently, and to recognize that we all have habits of thought, habits of feeling. We have habits about the way we go about our daily work. And that's good because habits are efficient. Mm -hmm. uh, but you can build habits that no longer are useful in the changing context that we find ourselves in. So part of it is being vigilant about what we're doing ourselves. So reflecting on what we've done, and you, you hear this all the time from, whether it's religious leaders or people in the leadership world, they say, take five minutes every day. Reflect on what you did during the day, where your habits got in the way of being successful, where your habits helped. Just what you did in evaluating, was what I did good? Was it bad? And even better, was it superlative? Did I actually get to the level of being virtuosic at some point during the day? And to say, that's what I'm striving for, is to be virtuosic. Because what's good today will be mediocre tomorrow. If you want to be on the cutting edge, you've got to be at that virtuosic edge all the time. But we don't know that we're there unless we're mindful enough to be able to see that. And in Buddhism, the word that's translated as mindfulness actually means to remember in the sense that the English word means to put things back together. So what you're doing in mindfulness is you are being present in the way that you need to be in order to allow all the experiences of the day to be held together as a relational tableau and to look at that and go, okay, so what was coming out of this? What outcomes, but also what opportunities? That's a little bit of work we could all do every day. So actually it's, the ability to reflect, right? So the practice itself is the ability to pause and reflect on the day ahead today and what was there and what my learning from this day and what maybe I could do differently, right? So it's, this is the practice actually to have the, to pause. Yeah, it's partly that it's pausing, reflecting, but also really attending to the relational dynamics that we're a part of. I mean, part of where I'm coming from is that as human beings, we don't begin as individuals. We don't live as individuals. We don't even die as individuals. We are relational from the beginning. You know, you take away your mom and dad, mm -hmm. even if you were an orphan, you had a mother and a father biologically. Somebody raised you. Somebody took care of you. 
without that, we don't exist. And so if we just take that seriously and say, if I'm trying to accomplish something, whether it's in business, it's in education, whatever, the things that are going to block us are relationships. The things that are going to free us up and move us along the path are relationships. It's all about the relational quality. So a lot of times leaders get hung up. I see this in place where I work. Mm-hmm. They get hung up in meeting goals, meeting expectations, measurable, you know, quantifiable stuff. And there's nothing wrong with that. You need some of it, but it's never going to turn your workplace into a transformative space within which everybody's really working together, taking their differences and allowing those differences to become the basis of real mutual contribution to something that everybody agrees on. Hey, this is us flourishing together, doing this together. I mean, that's what we're striving for. So when I'm talking to the people who are doing leadership stuff, I mean, for me, I often will contrast the English word manage, mm-hmm. which comes from the manas, the hand, and originally meant to put your hands on a wild animal to calm it down, to domesticate it. Mm-hmm. Managers domesticate their workers, okay? This is not a nice image. <laughs> In Chinese, uh, Japanese, Korean, uh, Vietnamese, the two characters that are used for management today, guanli uh, in Chinese, it literally means a conduit that passes along things that brings coherence into focus. Two words. The first one is a conduit, like a, a pipe that we use to irrigate a field. So a conduit. And then a word that means the coherent patterns among things in a situation. Patterns of coherence. So what you're trying to do as a manager in that sense, this Asian approach, is to try to bring the relationships into a kind of coherence that's creative and productive. I mean, that's what you're working with. You're channeling energy and connections among people. If you see the two people get along really well together, put them together and have them work more mm-hmm. and let them get a, the synergy going and then throw a wrench in. Throw in somebody that's a little bit of a disruptor that has a contrary view so that they have to be creative and responding to something together outside of their normal way of doing things. You're bringing different streams of energy together. And that's what we're really trying to do is to bring the energy together in different ways to get this phenomenon to take off where it becomes a self-sustaining whole. It's an emergent thing happens. And that's what we're striving for. Not this, you get all these little individuals doing their things like atoms and a Uh, an array. So you're actually talking about, uh, I agree with you, if, about the self-management today to, in order to succeed producing creative solutions and, and product or, or whatever, we really need to be able to enable the solution to emerge, but this requires us to really be able to self-manage. What, what does it mean? It means that I also need to be connected to my feeling, thoughts, process that I'm going through and at the same time to see the other person. And from this connection and deep listening, something can emerge. I think also the intuition connects you, right? Because when you sit in a conversation and suddenly you have an epiphany and you can share with it, even you, if you don't know what does it mean right now, you have a metaphor and say, okay, let's explore it. What does it mean? Where can it take us? So we can open again the space to enable something new. But So it really requires us as leaders, managers, and individuals to be able to be uh, attentive to ourselves, to others, and from this uh, respectful place 
to ourselves and others to be able to work together. And this is the main issue of the leaders today, right? It's not like I'm the boss, so do what I tell you to do. Although it's still there, the traditional leadership. But as we see it, it doesn't work anymore too much. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things that that's uh, one of these truisms that you hear is there's nothing like success to make for success. You know, mm-hmm. when if you're writing grant proposals, you get one or two, it's really easy to get three. And then it's really easy to get four and five. You know, mm-hmm. you you get on this loop where you're engaged in an activity where the outcomes are good, and then you're given an opportunity to do more of that. I mean, in Buddhism, that's the process of karma. You have your values, your intentions, you're pursuing what you want to do, your interests. If you're successful, you're given an opportunity to either change and do something else or to do more of that. And mostly what we do is more of what we're successful at. Mm-hmm. And that initially feels really good. But unless we're on that curve of virtuosity, Achieving something that's good and only good, it's a dead end. It's a dead end for us, and it's a dead end for the relationships we're in, because then it becomes predefined. And we know what we're going to be, you know. It's like I was a house painter for a while between undergraduate and grad school. Uh-huh. Got really good at painting houses. You know, restorative painting, where you strip everything down to the bare wood, five coats of paint, you know, three coats of, you know, primer, two coats of finish, buffing in between, everything pristine, no brush marks, lots of work. Once you do one house, you get another, you get another. And it's like four or five years down the line. It's like, do I want to be a house painter for the rest of my life? Uh You know, I could do it really well, but I don't think I want to be a house painter, you know? And, but other people might just stick with that. Ah, The money was really good. You know, the people are appreciative. It's not a bad life. And I'm not saying it would have been a bad life. But for someone like myself, I had a little bit more that I wanted to offer. So I think that getting what we want is fine. The trap is, you know, if you continually only operate on the basis of trying to get what you want, you will in the end be compelled to continue doing that, getting what you want. And that's a constraint on us. It's not freedom. It's a constraint. And that's the real problem with control. And so when I talk to people about leadership, I resist the the term manage just because of its roots as this domestication process. A lot of people are about control. And I'm like, you know, the karma of control is to get good at controlling things. You have to be able to perceive your environment as always being in need of control. Then once you learn how to control that stuff, then to continue operating to exercise your control, then you need to see even more things as being in need of control. So what you end up with is like this security state mentality where you continually have to be trying to manage and control the thing in the situation that you're in. And that's really deadening. You know, it's really deadening. It's quite different though out there if your motive is, I want to be able to offer to the, the situation I'm in as much of myself as I possibly can without any idea of what the return's going to be. I just want to have that feeling, that experience of being part of this energetically, creatively offering something. And the karma of that is, if you get good at doing that, you're going to be getting the opportunity to do more of it. And people kind of like, they think, oh, yeah, well, if I'm offering all the time, I'm not getting anything in return, then I'm just going to get burned out. I'm not going to get anything out of this. I'm not going to make any money. You know, it's like that thinking. No, but that's not how it works. Because in order to be able to continue offering, you have to have the resources for doing that. The resources will flow in. I mean, that, you have to engage in it enough to see it happening. Then you realize that is the way the world works. It's part of the structure of the cosmos. If you continue to offer and make that, uh, that's your intention, that's your karma, you get the resources to continue doing it. 
So what you say is uh, actually the, the paradigm of service. How can I serve my employees, my community, my customers, like the people planet profit aspect and not only looking for the bottom line for the, the money aspect. So as a company, as a business owner, I need to think how can I best serve everybody around me and when I do it, I will also succeed with the bottom line. But if I will think only in the business, now can I get more money? And this is connects to control as I see it. Probably I won't be able to flourish and my business won't be able to flourish well enough because I won't be able to see maybe also more opportunities and and I will only think, you know, what I get from it. So it really close. Yeah, let me, let me play a little bit with the word service. Okay. Because I think one liability of that is when a lot of people hear that, you have service and you have servant. So a servant does what the master wants. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're basically gearing your action to meet somebody else's goals and requirements. So you participate in that. That's a little different from offering. So when I'm offering something, I mean, if I'm offering sensitively, I have to figure out what you would like. I mean, if I give you something that you don't want, that's not very effective. So I have to kind of figure out what is it that I can offer to you that will excite you, that will engage you, that you'll appreciate, add value to yourself. So there's a little burden on me to figure it out. But what I'm then open up to is to be totally creative about what I bring to the situation. Whereas if I'm only providing a service, it's already predefined what I'm going to be doing, providing this particular service. So I I tend to think that the idea of metaphorically, being someone who's offering as opposed to being someone who's serving keys into the idea that we can be more creative with the offering than the serving simply because you don't have a predefined sort of goal as to what you're trying to achieve in being of service. And it's a minor little inflection of a difference, but I think for a lot of people, they don't want to be servants. So they hear service and servants and mm, they resist. Yeah, they don't want to be the servant, the person who is serving others. There's a reason for that. But to be able to say, I want to be someone who's able to offer to others. I want to, it's like being a benefactor. I'm going to benefit you. How can I benefit you? I mean, asking the question that way is different from how can I be of service to you? Because benefiting is open-ended. Being of service, there's a goal. At the end of the day, the business world needs to offer solutions, need to be really to offer something known. You can't come open and say, okay, what do you need for me? Let me dance with you. Okay, let's flirt and see what will emerge. It's not the business world language. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there we are going. But I think there's a need to be a balance, no, to maybe to hold the tension between the something very close and uh, known in advance and something open. I think at the end of the day, no, it's the balance between the doing mode and the being mode. Okay, when am I doing and when I'm stopping to pause and to listen to what's needed for me now? So it's actually, as I see it, the kind of um, the balance between them. Yeah, you know, you used the term a little while ago, paradigm, a paradigm mm-hmm. shift. Yeah. And I mean, that the term became famous because of Thomas Kuhn talking about scientific revolutions and how those happen. And he was not saying there's only one kind of science. He was saying there's two kinds of science. There's the kind of science when you're working within a paradigm and you're doing this goal-oriented work. Okay, you know what you want to achieve. You want to be able to build a laser that has a certain sort of capability Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to shoot a beam to something, a satellite in orbit and get a clear signal back. You know exactly what you need to do. And what you do scientifically is then you innovate within the scientific, finding what you can use technologically, scientifically, bring those together in order to accomplish this goal. 
that's part of science. It's part of life. It's part of business. That absolutely mm-hmm. is. But then what Kuhn was saying is there's another kind of science when science makes a leap forward. When you go from mechanistic physics to relativity physics to quantum physics, you know, you take this leap and the paradigm shifts and the nature of the, the regular work also shifts. But that paradigm change is not innovation. That's real creation. It's creativity, not just innovation. It's improvisation. Or we could talk about closed creativity. We're closed in the sense, you know what you want to achieve. Mm-hmm. And open creativity, you don't know where you're heading. You know, Einstein didn't know where he was heading. He just knew there's a conflict in the way the experimental results that from normal science were getting conflicting results. So he was trying to figure out how do we explain that? And it required him to take this leap into a whole new way of looking at the cosmos. So not everybody's going to be the type to do paradigm-changing work as an individual. They're rare. They're genius. But what we do know is that when you bring diverse groups of people together, people who are cognitively diverse, culturally diverse, and get them to work on these kinds of issues, they're capable of doing that paradigm-changing work. Whereas individuals, even geniuses, can have a really hard time doing it. So it's hard to bring people sometimes together to do the basic work, but to do the paradigm changing work, hard if everybody's an expert. The worst thing you can do is put together a room of experts to do that kind of stuff because they all know the way the world works. They're experts in it. <laughs> That's right. So when you sit together and really listen, but for this, we really need to be able to really listen and to be present. So wisdom can emerge, right? And this is the Actually, the transformation that you're talking about, the creative transformation, can't do it alone, actually. No. And like I was just trying to reaffirm, we need to do the basic problem-solving work. There's a lot of problem-solving that we still need to do. But the real big challenges, things like climate change or what artificial intelligence is making us confront, these are predicaments. They're not problems. I mean, Mm -hmm. a problem is something bad. You're not getting where you want to go. And you need to figure out how to get where you want to go. So you innovate, you find a solution, okay? A predicament is there's conflicts happening. We're getting good things and bad things at the same time from the same processes. And so it's not like we could just choose, oh, let me just sort out the good things and leave the bad ones behind. It doesn't work like that. So somehow we have to reconfigure the values that are guiding our intentions that we're putting into action in order to change the relational totality so that we can resolve the predicament So predicament resolution, unlike problem solution, doesn't have a goal. It's open-ended. You can actually resolve predicaments, but you can't predefine what that's going to consist in. So it takes that kind of creativity. And yes, that does mean listening to each other. Uh, I talk about it as not just we differ from each other. And if we're going to get this predicament resolution to occur, we also have to be willing to differ for one another. That's different. Differing from and differing for. Different form. What do you mean by that? So I have to change something about who I am Mm -hmm. to be able to engage the situation so that I can understand where you're coming from in a way that's beneficial to me and to us working together on this issue. That requires me to stop just being myself, expressing who I am and how I'm different. I think differently than you do. And then we're we're looking what for a compromise, a halfway position. That's that's dead. That's not creative. I mean, we already know where we're going to end up. That's just mathematics. Mm-hmm. But if we're going to get the real creativity to take off, both of us have to be willing to differ for the other person, to take who I am and to tweak it, new, take a new angle, do something that we haven't done before, 
in order to engage the situation. And I think that's what we need. So it's a little bit what we started to talk at the beginning. Really the ability to come to a situation open and not attached to our stories, not attached to our solutions, listening to the deeper layer of the values of what, what is important for you and what is important for me and going deeper beyond the facts. I remember having a conversation with my spouse that was really crucial for both of us because it was really emotional. It was about the kids. And then I, I remember that I said, okay, what's really important for you? What is really the value? Not the solution and what you offer. And I also needed to say what's important for me and then found a solution that must be honest. It was hard for me because it wasn't what I thought in the beginning and I needed to let go of my assumptions. So I did need to get out of my comfort zone and to be in an uncomfortable state. But I understood that this is the, the win-win situation, that this, this is the right solution, even if it touched painful places for me. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, by the end of the day, as individuals, it touches us really in our emotion, in our painful places that we need to heal them and not close them and to make more of the same. I mean, one of the things I think it's important for all of us to keep in mind is that we can't get ahead of ourselves in the game. I mean, we're just where we are. And that takes a sort of humility that we're at a certain place in our own life trajectory, you know. But wherever it is that we're going to go has to build on our life trajectory, has to build on who we've been until now. I mean, we can't just go from being who we are to being somebody totally different. I mean, unless you're schizophrenic and have a schizophrenic <laughs> break or something. You know? But for most of us, what it means is it's going from A to A prime to A double prime to A triple prime. It's not going A to B. And so one of the things that I think is really useful for people is to get rid of the idea that somehow they don't have what it takes to deal with the situation that they find themselves in and to reflect on their lives and ask this question. If everything that you've experienced until now was for the purpose of you having some special ability to deal with this situation, whatever the troubling, difficult situation is, what would that be? I mean, who would you, how would you change the way you looked at yourself? If you looked at all the triumphs and the, the terrible things that happened to you in your life, the tragic stuff, all of it was preparation. All of it was something purposeful to allow you to be able to be present in this particular way, in this moment, do the superlative thing, to do something really virtuosic in this moment. And then we'll find, usually, we've got plenty of resources in our life. Our stories are all really rich. We all have really rich stories. That's, that's really what we have to draw on. It's our histories. You know, and the histories go back beyond just us as individuals. They're cultural histories and so on. That's all we have to draw on. So let's make use of it. Great. And the last question before we wrap up, how do you see the COVID pandemic situation and the connection to leaders? And what it's a question that I was asked in a lecture I gave. What do you think the leaders need to learn from this COVID-19 situation? Well, if, we are, if we're talking about political leaders, mm-hmm. um, I will speak to the American situation. We have leadership in the United States that initially dismissed scientific evidence, dismissed the best advice of people in the health field, people who are experts, who put together a team of people to work on the issues and whose recommendations were then not in for political reasons. I think that the bottom line is, is if people are politicians in order to forward their ideology, their vision of the way the world ought to be, the vision of what the country ought to be, In the conditions of pandemic, they're really dangerous. Those are particularly dangerous people in those times. Because what you need then is for people to pull the best of the resources that we've got 
from the scientific community, the medical community, the people who do social movements, and to really draw on many different kinds of expertise, allow this diversity dividend to emerge there where the differences become productive. It's really crucial in a time of a pandemic as things are happening fast. And because any one group of people, any one set of experts only has one pick part of the picture, they don't have the total picture. So if I'm a doctor and I'm working on how the disease affects the lungs, you know, this virus, I'm not seeing social transmission. I'm focused on viral lung interactions. I'm an expert on it, mm -hmm. but I need somebody else to talk to, you know, a public health expert to talk about lines of transmission. And then you need anthropologists and you need sociologists. I just think that there's, we do not have in place the kind of consultative expertise at high levels for politicians both to draw upon and act in accordance with. And that's really something we need to be able to put into place because this is just the first pandemic. It's not going to be the last. And there will be other challenges that we'll be forced to face, whether they're technological or medical or some other form of trauma that humanity is going to face. We're going to be facing more of it. And we need to be able to pull resources to, to pull it off, to respond appropriately. It comes again to the ability also to be diverse, right? To, to be expert, but to be able to connect and relational aspects and to enable the accurate solution to emerge. I'm not talking about variety. Mm -hmm. you know, variety is just an index of multiplicity. It's quantitative. There's lots of different people from different places together. Cultural yeah. variety. Cultural diversity is when people bring their cultural differences to bear and where the differences are not understood as gaps between us, they're understood as openings, opportunities for mutual contribution. And when you get people to contribute, to use their differences, to contribute to one another, to a shared notion of flourishing, that's when diversity emerges. It's a relational quality. So yeah. unlike variety, which you can force, diversity has to emerge. You can only cultivate it. Hope that comes about. Yeah. It comes back to, if I will summarize the interesting conversation and inspiring, it needs to come to the qualities of being curious adopting beginner's mind, come to a situation to really be present and to see what wants to emerge, to respect. I think this is a crucial quality that we need to respect others that are not like us and things differently. This is the quality that we need to nourish in order to really, I think it's challenging for us and it's really require practice. Each it does, one. yeah. I mean, I, I think of three R's. We have to respect our differences, you know. We have to recognize them first. We have to respect them. But we'll only go so far if we also don't resist our own habits, our own proclivity for just staying the way we are, not changing in response to, not being ready to transform in response to others. And so we need to resist that tendency and then to really engage responsibly. And that demands a lot of us. It yeah. does. It's not resist the habits. I think the habit sometimes doesn't serve us anymore, but it's the resist the want to be connected to others and the fear to be not part of a group or to be rejected. So we, we are letting go of ourselves. So I think what you say, it's Resistant to so the things that barricade us within ourselves. Yeah, actually, to dare to bring our complete self, our authenticity, and to dare to put it out there, even if not everybody agree with me. Yeah, and I think in the leadership dimension, 
one of the things that I found really disheartening at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic when it was really taking off in March was the readiness of countries to say, we're going to go on our own way with this, rather than working together and figuring a way to work together. Even in the EU, you know, where you've got a mechanism for working together, yeah. the countries ended up having all their own approaches. And in some ways, that's good because then you have different experiments and you can learn from different experiments. For treating a global pandemic, you need a global response. So one of the lessons from this is we don't yet have what it takes to mount a global response. You know, the UN is good about some things, but they just, yeah, they didn't have what it took either. And because they don't have the mandate and maybe we don't want a global government, you know, maybe that's not a good idea. But what we do need is people who are politicians, leaders of countries, who are capable of really working creatively together for humanity's benefit. We need that. Yep. So, Peter, thank you very much for being with us and sharing with us your experience and inspiring thought and practical things that you do. Well, it's a great pleasure to uh, have the opportunity to see you uh, visually and uh, have a conversation. It's great. This was Dr. Peter Herschok. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. You are invited to subscribe to the podcast and hope you will join us for the, our next conversation. Take care and bye-bye.